You're listening to the QPEM Podcast. To listen to our previous Sunday worship services, please visit our website at www.qpem.org. That's qpem.org. This week's message was given by Pastor Peter Kim. It's really great how enduring it is to see more faces here at QPEM uh, this Sunday, the Lord's Day. We have a more balanced male-female ratio than we had, uh, I guess, uh, last week and two weeks ago. It felt more like a men's group gathering, right, a few uh, weeks ago. Though. But, you know, we're glad to uh, have more of the sisters join us, balance it out a bit, and we're glad to have all of you here in person. And we welcome all our Cupid family, of course, that are joining us online as well. Um, you know, we are still in the middle of this pandemic, right? It's not over by any means. We don't know when it'll end. Thankfully, by God's grace, uh, our city, New York, right, uh, has had our numbers go down and and we're slowly reopening back up. But we know that's not the case for places uh, across our country and in the world as well. We keep those who are uh, in in those high-risk cities in prayer. I think of our our brother and sister, uh, John and Christina's family and David Wynn's family that just moved from New York to Texas. That's one of the hot spots right now in the country as well. So we keep them in prayer. I know they're joining us online today to worship. So we're with you guys. And, you know, here in our city, uh, we have started to reopen. And again, even the church, we almost have a full capacity, I, I, I guess, as we can here today um, under this new normal, so to speak, right? And we have much to pray for uh, as we reflect on uh, the impact this uh, uh, pandemic has had. Right now, our state still, right, has suffered the highest number uh, of of death toll in America. More than 24,000 people have died in our city, this city that we call home. More than 10,000 than the second highest state, uh, uh, New Jersey, right? And, And to this compounding, not just this pandemic, we see what's happening, right, across our nation and especially here in New York as well uh, uh, with just the racial tension and just all the, uh, the, the tension between communities and law enforcement. We see the shootings have gone up uh, in the past month, 51% this past year, it's saying. From last month uh, in June, there were 250 shootings in New York City, and just up 150%. Six months of this year, murders have increased 23%. 176 people have died, have been killed in our city. Can you believe that? Burglaries are up 120%. Car thefts are up 50%. And all this is happening and scary to think about. New York, the place that we've grown up, that we endure and we love. We think about New York City in the summers especially. Shouldn't this be the best time? Uh, you know, t- the streets should be teeming, you know, with life, energy. Tourists from all around the world are, ought to be here. And yet, streets are empty, virtually. Um, restaurants, shops are still boarded up. Broadway, you know, sits in darkness until probably next year. Hotels are closed. And subways that once carried 750,000 commuters each day, now mainly still deserted. Times Square, right? The, the vibrant mecca, you know, epic uh, center of our city. Handful of now street vendors <laughs> offer hand sanitizers, face masks, in place of what they were selling before, you know, knockoff sunglasses or bags. But our city's changed, hasn't it? Our, our life has changed here. You know, Joel Kotkin, um, he's a leading expert on urban trends, uh, a native New Yorker. Uh, he wrote in this article, he said that this is an unprecedented crisis, the likes of which New York has never faced. You know, even 9-11, when that happened, it was a major disruption, but the country and our world rallied together in support, and 
there was a great sense of solidarity, right? Even in that time, we don't feel that sense of solidarity today, unfortunately, right? With this COVID-19 pandemic hitting New York City, he wrote that the conditions were perfect for that pandemic to flourish. Subways were filthy. There was huge disparity in wealth between the rich and the poor. The rich, immediately what happened, they fled to homes, their homes in the countryside or by the beach. Millennials went home to their parents. And what did it do? It left the poor, the immigrants, to live in these incredibly crowded households. Conditions with high levels of poverty, multiple generations living, you know, in just one household in these apartments. And then you add to that riots and protests, and here we have this perfect storm, New York City, right? Everything that could go wrong, he says, it has, right? And Kakin even believes that people now being able to work, right, from home, uh, this ability now to uh, telecommute so more so than ever, it's going to dramatically change the nature of life in New York forever, a city which was now perhaps perceived as dangerous and dirty, he says it doesn't hold any appeal, the once appeal that it had. Now it makes sense to locate to suburban regions, smaller towns that are generally, in the people's eye, you can call safer or cleaner, even less expensive. You know, perhaps that's what we're seeing even you know, as it hits home to QPEM, right? Our family, our friends, our brothers and sisters moving away. Again, four families moved away last month. And another family shared with me this past week that, you know, Pastor Pete, I just don't feel safe living in our city anymore. <laughs> you know, we're praying about possibly us moving as well. <laughs> what can we do in this great city of ours? Is there no hope for our city, church? No hope for cities throughout our country like Chicago, you know, L.A., Detroit. You know. Should we abandon these cities? Give up on New York. No hope, no future. Especially during this pandemic and surely afterwards. You know. What are to do with the cities in our country and the world? And in the coming weeks, I'd like to take us um, <laughs> in a journey throughout Scripture, as we go through the Bible, exploring the cities in Scripture, great cities that were vital to God's plan of redemption for you and I. I I'd like us to see how, how in these cities, God carried out his plan of salvation through the means of these cities. And I pray that you and I, as we go through this journey, as we hear God's living word today, we will learn why cities are so important, why cities are so precious and valuable to God, and why they should also be so important to you and I. Let's pray that as we go through these studies, that these cities would show us how integral they are to God's plan in bringing his kingdom here on earth today. He hasn't given up on these cities. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19, our passage today, right? You know, two Sundays ago, when we reopened our doors, I preached the sermon, right? God of this city, uh, he uh, showed us that God has compassion for cities, for our city, as he did in, in, in the book of Jonah for the city of Nineveh, right? As it describes that great city of more than 120,000 people, and, and Jonah says, you know, these people, sinners and wretched uh, pagans, but to God, he said, there are 120,000 people. They did not know their right hand from their left. In other words, they were people who were not able to distinguish between good and evil, between right and wrong. 
You know, this city, if you can say, um, in Jonah's eyes, they were enemies of God, living in disobedience, rebellion. They were lost, hopeless. Perhaps not just Nineveh. Almost every major city in the world we can perhaps see in this way. But yet, to this great city that deserved, if you want to say judgment, the wrath of God, what did God do? He instead, he brought deliverance, great mercy, and his loving kindness, chesed, right, to the great city of Nineveh. Praise God for his mercy. And today, as we take this exploration once again, we look at another great city in the Bible. And we go to this great city of Ephesus here. Ephesus is today's modern-day Turkey, where Turkey is today. Ephesus back in the first century was the principal city back then, the capital of Asia Minor. It was a commercial center, a preeminent center of actually pagan religions, occult practices. Imperial cult worship was great in the city of Ephesus. There were actually three temples dedicated to the practice of cult worship there. And the grand prize of them all was a temple of Artemis, this temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis or Diana as the Romans called her. The cult of Artemis in Ephesus had an enormously huge and powerful following. During the Roman period, prominent generals, politicians would come to Ephesus. They would travel miles to offer sacrifices to the statue of the goddesses. Although many other gods were worshipped at Ephesus, Artemis was by far the most important deity in the first century. And this temple was majestic. If we have that picture, I'd like to put up that depiction here of what the temple looked like back in that first century. It's one of the, it was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. It became such an attraction. It drew, again, just enormous crowds from all around the world. The main tourist attraction from the city of Ephesus. And you can imagine, as all these people came in droves, there was a huge economic boon to the city. A great deal of income. Finances would come, and this great city was very prominent in that day. But in our passage, if you look with me in Acts 19, verse 23, it says, in this great city, there arose a great disturbance. Luke writes in Acts 19 that about that time, here in Ephesus, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. A great disturbance concerning the way. What's the way? Well, it refers to Christianity. That's what outsiders called Christians back then. And we see in verse 24 that there's a man named Demetrius who had a big problem, a big issue with the way, Christianity. It says in verse 24, a man named Demetrius, he was a silversmith, one who made these silver shrines of Artemis, the great Greek goddess there. And these shrines were used by people to bring home as home altars of worship. And they also were used as offerings that worshipers used to present at the temple of Artemis with each visit. If you even travel around the world today, you visit these temples. I've been to a couple of these temples in Asia, and you still see that. People selling, right? Right outside the shrines, these little souvenirs for people to take home for worship. And as you can imagine, as it is today, back then, it's a lucrative business. Even Demetrius says, the craftsmen, it brought great business to that industry. But something was happening. 
to disrupt this business. Something was putting this entire industry in jeopardy. And in verse 25 and 26, Demetrius gathers all his fellow craftsmen together. And look what it means. Look with me what he says. He says, there he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said this, men, you know, from, you know that from this business that we have, we have our wealth, right? And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that this guy Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, Demetrius and his tradesmen, you know, they've made their fortunes, their wealth from their business. They're selling these little sh- silver shrines. And, and Paul clearly has threatened their industry. Paul's telling the people that are, are, are going to these temples to worship. He's saying, Paul's saying, you know, would you turn away from these false idols? These are not real gods, right? Turn away from the false Greek god and goddesses against these worthless and vain idols, Would you turn away from idolatry? That's what Apostle Paul is preaching, right? Would you turn from these false idols and turn to the only one and true God? God and his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul is preaching and the people were beginning to listen, right? And as they were listening, Christianity began to grow. We know in the first century, it began to spread from city to city. People began to turn from the worship of these false gods. And they were turning to Jesus Christ. Fewer, as you can imagine, of these shrines then were being sold, right? In front of these temples. And you can imagine what that's doing to the economy in Ephesus. As the scholars noted, he said the Diana cult, the Artemis cult, was probably the most important industry to the Ephesus economy. You take that out, guess what? Ephesus isn't the same city. No more Ephesus as we know it. Right? So it's kind of like New York City today, right? You, in the streets of Times Square, all those souvenir shops, right? They're selling those little trinkets and keychains, and I love New York shirts, you know? Right now it's all closed out. It's not the same city. But back in Ephesus, to a far greater extent, the impact it's making here. We're at a critical juncture now in our story. The city of Ephesus here, this great city, this you know, just incredible commercial city, the center, a prominent city in uh, capital of Asia Minor, it, it can go one of two ways here. It can either continue to be that preeminent center of pagan uh, cult practice in Asia Minor, continue to have these people worship false gods and deities like Artemis, idols of all sorts. It can continue on this path of, of being a city of pagan worshipers who do not know God, who are lost, hopeless. And we know in Scripture, those who do not have a relationship with God because of their sin, they are to be condemned to death for all eternity. We know the, the, the destiny for those who don't have a relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ. It can either continue to go that route or in this crossroads, it can be a great city. A great city that is transformed, right? From the inside out. A, with a people that hearts are changed that would they would come to know God who would experience his mercy and find salvation that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. To experience this, this true meaning of life and purpose and satisfaction that only Jesus Christ, as we know, offers us, right? Two paths. We're at a crossroads now. Well, Demetrius, surely, he is adamant 
to make sure the city of Ephesus continues to stay in that former path. Right? His wealth, his interest, his livelihood is at stake, yes. And so in verse 27, look with me what he says to the people. He says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into dispute, disrepute, you know, out of reputation, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. See what Demetrius is doing here? You can say he, he's a man of persuasion. He's trying to persuade the crowd. You know, stop, you know, what God is doing here. I, I see what's happening in this Paul guy. He's beginning to stir up opposition to Paul and God's work. He's appealing to the crowds, and he's appealing to them in two ways. He's like, you know, in their professional pride, you know, hey, our trade, it's going to lose its reputable name, its good name. You know, how dare Paul slander our profession, you know? If someone, you know, mocked or, or, or slandered your profession, whatever you do, you know, you stand up for it perhaps, right? How dare Paul question the integrity of what we do? for our livelihood, right? And then he also appeals to their religious or civic pride. He's saying the temple of this great goddess Artemis is being discredited. Can't you see? It's being counted as nothing. The goddess herself will be robbed and her divine majesty question. How can anyone do such a thing? Robber of her magnificence. Demetrius, he's quite the speaker. He surely knows how to stir up emotions. He knows how to persuade others to follow his interests, what's you know, benefiting him and his wallet, right? His business. But not just that. You know, he's having he's desiring people to follow his you know, perspective, his ideologies, his thinking, whatever it is that benefits his agenda, that's what he wants the crowds to follow. He's trying to persuade them and such. And it seems like it's working. And after that passion speech, look with me in verse 28 to 29. And the crowds, they're responding here. When they heard this, it says they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Archers, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. They were just gathering whoever were part of Paul's team. Crowd was enraged and they're crying out, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. It says, even in verse 29, they entered into this theater. This theater is not like a, like a movie theater that we know of today. You know? This theater that, that existed and still some do, the remains in Turkey here today, is nestled at this, the foot of this Mount Pion and, and it's nearly 500 feet in diameter. It can accommodate, they're saying, about 25,000 people, these theaters. Can you imagine the mob scene, can you? The crowds, 25,000 enraged city filled with confusion and chaos. In verse 32, it says, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not even know why they had come together. Right? You can maybe think about what's happening even in our cities today, in our country, right? Still continued you know, protests, the marches that are happening against social injustice. Uh, you know, our church, you know, we have taken a formal stance that we stand with those who are fighting against social injustice. 
We are standing in that fight against social injustice. Those who are peacefully protesting against the wrongs, the oppression that minorities, especially the African-American communities, have faced. And we need to do justice for the people who have been treated unfairly, who do not have the equal rights as we all ought to, as the Bible says. I've been preaching you know, you know, months ago as, you know, as the season that we're in. If we've been touched by the grace of God's son, Jesus Christ, then his grace has to motivate us to see justice in this world. Right? So we stand united in that cause. But unfortunately, there's people, right? There's others that have used this opportunity, this movement as a means for their own interests, right? For violence, looting, stealing, and promoting their own agenda. And it's, it's, it's just destroyed and it's taking away the focus of what these protests and marches are all about, right? Some people are just rioting in the streets. They don't even know why they're there, right? That's what we're seeing here in our uh, Ephesus. Great confusion, shouting, rioting. People enraged, a city filled with chaos. And all this started with the persuasion of this one man, Demetrius, who was concerned with his interests, his business, his silver shrines that he can no longer sell if the temple goes away. Right? In his persuasion, he has created division, a city divided, fighting, confused. Now this great city of Ephesus is in great peril. Right? It's in great danger. I, I reflect again how this story perhaps ties to what's going on today in our great city, in our country, in our world. We see continued division, confusion, chaos even, right? And I, I asked that question a few weeks ago. I, I, I am asking, I'm wondering, are we brothers and sisters, right, and sons and daughters of God, people that God has called, set apart, a holy nation, are we, in essence at all, adding to this confusion and this chaos? Are we contributing in our city to debating, arguing, fighting with one another that ultimately leads, leaves our city in this state of, uh, of just chaos, continuing to worship false idols, deities like the city of Ephesus? How are we persuading others in this city, or perhaps even within our church walls. Two Sundays ago, I did speak about everything that's happening and emotions have been building up. And we, I, I know we said that online especially, right? You know, debates, arguments, you know, Facebook, you know, just back and forth, you know, ex exploding online. And even at QPEN, we said perhaps there is a civil war internally even brewing within our congregation. You know, that Sunday, two, two Sundays ago, when we opened our doors, we, we invited our members to stay after service to have an opportunity just to dialogue, right? To share what's going on in our country, especially with respect to the social injustice and the backlash against law enforcement. And we had Detective G, you know, Deacon G of the NYPD, and he, he was here to share his perspective from the law enforcement lens. And we had, uh, I think it was a group of like 16 young adults that stayed after on, on that Sunday for this dialogue. And as we're preparing for this dialogue or forum, whatever you want to call it, I was speaking with Detective Chief Pryor, and he was saying, that's Peter, I'm ready to go to battle. He said, okay. I'm ready to go to war with these young adults. Hey, hey, bring it on. You know, I'm ready to take all their attacks. And I, you know, I'm ready, you know, expecting a lot of heat. I shared to Detective G and also to the young adults prior, right? Hey, you know, 
This is not going to be a debate, right? It's not going to be some kind of argument about who's right or wrong. Try to persuade the other side to win over your argument. It's an opportunity God's giving us to be real with one another, to listen incarnationally, right? That what, remember that, what that means, right? To put our, 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 our perspective, our thoughts, our ideologies into that other person's world, right? As they're speaking and sharing, right? Not to respond immediately with, with what I think and what my, my worldview says, but to try to put myself in their world, to empathize, to understand. And you know, as the dialogue progressed, I'm telling you, the conversation, it came back to Jesus Christ, didn't it, right? It came back to Jesus. You know, you know what is Christ calling us in this case, you know? How are we to respond in social injustice? How are we to respond to the, the oppression that even the, you know, the, the, the minorities are feeling and then even the backlash that our law enforcement is facing right now? You know, it came back to Jesus. And we began to experience the love of Christ as brothers and sisters there. And instead of this debate, trying to persuade, win each other's side, we had this open, beautiful dialogue. It was respectful, honest, and real. At the heart of it was Jesus. And as we had this hour and a half just listening and sharing, we grew closer together as a family of God. Praise God. Deacon G afterwards, you know, he shared uh, to our uh, Kakao group in the Deacons and Leaders chat group, he said afterwards, he said, I just want to thank all the participants today, especially the young adults that came, we had such a great dialogue. And, and I love kind of what he said. He said, we had a great dialogue and more of a unifying QPEM moment there, he said. How beautiful is that? Instead of just, you know, continuing you know, the civil war, just dividing and just arguing, we had a unifying QPEM moment there. Because we brought it back to Jesus, right? Ephesians 4, 31, 32, I mean, he talks about, you know, letting all your bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you, right? It's bringing back to Jesus how we've been forgiven. How are we not to then ex- extend that mercy to others? You know, here we're seeing what's happening. Demetrius is showing one way in how he can respond in persuading others a way that's leading to destruction and division and even more anger and hatred, God shows us a different way, church, today. He shows us a a right way through his servant Paul that will ultimately lead to the salvation of souls. Look with me in verse 8 here. Paul now, he's in Ephesus, and it says in verse 8, and he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke Boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Reasoning and persuading. There's that word persuading again. That's what Paul's doing in the synagogues in Ephesus. What is Paul reasoning and persuading the people to do? To what is he proclaiming? He's not just proclaiming the gospel, the good news. He's not just teaching about Jesus and who he is. Surely he's doing that, of course. But he's giving reasons why you ought to believe in Jesus. It's both personal and intellectual reasons, truths, credibility for his faith. He's not just saying, oh, just believe, just have faith, you know? He's not just saying, you know, just take this message, take it or leave it. He's saying, believe it, and here's why, right? Here's why. Listen to me here. I want to share with you 
I want to, I want to, I want you to hear me out. Listen, I have a case here for Jesus Christ, right? It's John Stott, great theologian. He says, Paul here is seeking to convince in order to convert. And in fact, as Luke may explain, many were being persuaded here. Paul's presentation of the gospel, it is real, it's personal, it's well-reasoned. And it says here in scripture, it was persuasive. Why? Because ultimately, Paul believed in what he was sharing, right? In what he was proclaiming and and teaching and, and sharing. He believed the gospel in his life, in his heart, right? He believed that once we were all lost, you know, like those pagans and the the sinners in the city of Ephesus worshiping false gods and deities. We may not be worshiping like these statues and going to the temples of Artemis and such, but you know what? We all have idols, don't we? These false glories, these counterfeit glories, that idols that we feel are giving us some kind of meaning some kind of purpose and worth, you know? You know if, I, if I feel, you know, hey, this thing here, if I, if I get a good job, it's gonna give me a sense of significance, you know? If I make enough money and then I have a family with kids and we can take vacations, it's gonna give me fulfillment. We go to these little idols in our lives. We seek after them. We don't even realize they're idols. But sure enough, as we engage and we experience all of these things of this world, we come to a place, and I hope you have, in your life, that we recognize, you know what? It doesn't fully satisfy. You know what I'm talking about? You hear me? I've experienced, you know, like, you know, uh, relationships. I've experienced, you know, promotions in my job. I, I'm driving a nice car. I've got a nice place. I, I have these things, but I still feel empty. I don't feel satisfied. Something's missing. Paul recognizes that we were all in that place, living for ourselves, trying to find that you know, satisfaction for our selfish ambition, self-interest, just like Demetrius was. We're all going through this rat race, this, this grind of life. You, know, you kind of maybe know what that's like in New York, perhaps. Work, you know, 50, 60 hours a week, and then what are we working for? What, for a couple of weeks vacation to get away from the escapes of the, you know, the hardships of life? And we come to realize it's only temporal pleasures, right? And all of that eventually leads to just death and destruction. That's what the Bible says. But Paul believed in something, something that he experienced personally. This gospel, the good news, that in our fallen state, right, as we were lost and hopeless, no future, that God sent the only way to save us, the only way to salvation. He sent the blameless, spotless Lamb of God, his very son, Jesus Christ, right? And he sent Jesus to to show us that through his life, we are able to find this fulfillment that truly satisfies, that that in Jesus, we we experience experience that something will fill the longings of our hearts once and for all. It's only through Jesus that we find that satisfaction, right? understanding that in our, our pursuits of this life that we fall short, that we will never be able to attain that, that kind of a purpose and, and, and hope. And, and in Jesus, we have, by his death on the cross, now we have life to the full, right? And Paul believes this. He believes this gospel, the good news, that 
God came in Jesus to save us and give us life. Paul was persuaded by the truth in his own personal life. And so what did that do to him? He now became a persuader of the truth, right? He wasn't afraid to engage in the minds of of hearers to share this great news, you know. He believed it and he wanted to persuade others to this truth. Think about it, right? If you really believe something, to be true in your life. Think of whatever it is. I'm not just talking about Christianity now. What do you have such conviction about that you know is so true, you have confidence in, that you have even a passion for? I'd probably say that, you know, whatever that is, you, you talk about it to other people, right? Your friends, your family, your coworkers. You're not afraid to engage, you know, in dialogue, maybe deep discussions, because why? Because you know the truth. You've experienced it firsthand. You know, you can tell about it. You can describe it because you, you've seen it. You've tasted it. You're not afraid to share it. You know, what is it that you're excited to talk about? What are the things that stir up your hearts that you can't help but tell others? You know, I, you know, I think about things, you know, simple things that, that people have tried to persuade me to, you know. Yeah, I think a few, uh, two years ago, there was a salesman that came into my house and, and they sat us down and they were presenting this, you know, this grand, you know, uh, just, just, you know, like presentation of, of having solar panels, they said, okay? In New York, you know, electricity, content bills are so expensive and so high. Hey, they said, the new, you know, technology's out. Solar panels are the way to go. I was like, hi, here's this pitch again, you know, it's trying to make money and look, investment costs, no way, there's no way it's going to pay for itself. He said, Trust me, you, you know, the south-facing home, you're going to, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay for itself within a year. And I was like, I don't know. But, you know, he, he, he persuaded me, this salesman did. He showed me the numbers. He showed me other, you know, homes that had done this. And, and so we, we took that, uh, you know, a, a step, I guess, to install these solar panels in our home. I'm telling you, after a year and a half now, it's probably one of the best investments I've ever made in my life, okay? It's, it's just astounding, with all the government subsidies and New York City's offered and tax abatements and credits, basically it already had paid for itself. I have not had an electricity bill since March 2019. Okay, can you imagine that? On a Con Ed bill? We haven't paid electricity for a year and a half now. And I won't for as long as these panels continue to work, probably 15, 20 years, right? I can tell you about it. I can, you know, share with you how it works and, and, and why you should get it yourselves. I believe it. Why? Because I've been persuaded. I've experienced it. Once we have been persuaded to a truth, whatever it is, you know, we want to become persuaders ourselves and share others, you know, this good news. Hey, you ought to do it. I'm experiencing the benefits myself. You know, I read this quote about persuasion. It says, to be persuasive, we must be believable. To be believable, we must be credible. And to be credible, we must be truthful. To be persuasive, we must be believable. To be believable, we must be credible. To be credible, we must be truthful. Church, is there any other truth than what I hold in my hand today? The word of God, right? The absolute truth that we live by and all other truth claims that we hold to this standard of truth in life, church. Do we believe this? When we know this truth, we're not afraid to take a stand with this When we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you have been persuaded in your life by the gospel of what it's done for you, then we're compelled to share that with others. We don't shy away, right, from opportunities. We have a member, our sister here, she brought brought four brothers here to worship with us today. I mean, that's a living example, right? Even today we see this being lived out. 
We don't avoid, you know, people, maybe at work or whatnot, that always seems to be bashing Christianity. Oh, you know, I don't want to get into an argument with them and, you know, you know, just have this label of being a Christian at work, you know. We don't purposely change discussions when, say, an atheist or agnostic poses a question about our faith. When we really believe the gospel is the answer for all questions of life that every person is really asking in this world, in their hearts, then we're going to start to talk to people about this. We'll become persuaders for the gospel. Persuaders for God's people. Persuaders for God's city, church. You know, some of us, we perhaps may think that, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a, yeah, I'm a persuader of the gospel. Yet, if we look at perhaps a self-reflection, and I'm doing that too with my life and how I'm talking with others, and if, if I look at my life and I ask you to do the same, ask yourselves, are we bringing people to Jesus? Are you attractive where others will be drawn to you and come to hear of Jesus Christ through your life? We may think so, but maybe for some of us, what we think what we're doing is actually doing the opposite. In our persuasions or arguments, whatever you want to say, we're actually pushing people further away from the gospel. We're dividing even people more in this critical time that we are living in right now, unprecedented times. Are we being persuaders for this city, this great city of ours? Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to reflect on this today. Are we being effective as persuaders of the gospel? If not, why? Because I don't want to offend someone. Because I don't want to infringe on their beliefs. I don't want them to judge me or you know, say, oh, there's that Christian. You know, I don't want to have lunch with you today. <laughs> I'd rather have lunch with an atheist or a vegan. <laughs> Paul experienced op- opposition. He did. Right? In verse 9, we see that. It says, when some became stubborn in this teaching, they continued in unbelief. They spoke evil of the way before the congregation. Well, what did he do? He withdrew from them. And he took disciples with him. And he continued, what? Reasoning Daily in the hall of Tyrannus. He continued. He didn't give up. He didn't say, all right, too much opposition. Done, let's move on. No, he continued to persuade others daily. Okay, daily. You know, just, I just go a little excerpt here. And if you look at your Bible and you look at this verse 9, and there's maybe a little footnote that you see in some manuscripts that adds that Paul did this from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, in, in Paul's day, it's from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Every day he's reasoning in the halls of Tyrannus. Why those hours? Well, in the commentaries I looked it up, scholars say that the public life in these cities it ended regularly at the fifth hour. Actually, by 11 a.m., the public life ended. It's over. Okay, your work, you know, our, your work day is done at 11. How nice would that be for us, right? But you're done, you know? And, and, and the sunrise, it began and continued through the cool of the early morning, but at 11, cities stopped. A long siesta, if you want to say, right? There are probably more people sleeping at 1 p.m. Than, than, uh, than awake, right? At 1 a.m., but Paul wasn't asleep here. No, until 11 a.m., Paul is continuing. He would work up to you know, 11 a.m. as a tent maker, and that was his job, right, to provide for his ministry. And then at 11, what did he do? He went to the hall of Tyrannus. He went to the lecture hall, and what did he do? He reasoned and dialogued all afternoon, daily. That's five hours a day. Can you imagine? You know, we work our full-time jobs, right? You put on your hours at work, and then in your free time, while most of the city is taking their afternoon siesta, what do you do? You go and give a lecture at a hall to anyone who will come and listen. 
about who Jesus Christ is. And you know, did he do this for a day or two, a week? No, look in verse 10 as we close. He says, this continued for two years. Two years. Do the math. Five hours a day, six days a week, two years straight. 3,120 hours of the gospel taught in Ephesus. No wonder, verse 10 says, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Praise God. Praise God. In this great city of Ephesus, a city of pagan worship, God used a man named Paul. Paul. To be a persuader of this city. This Paul, man, Paul, he was an enemy of God. He had a lot of faults himself, but he used this man to persuade that through the city of Ephesus, all the residents, he says in the Bible, of Asia would hear the word of the Lord. Do you see how important cities are? That through Paul's teaching in Ephesus, all the regions of Asia Minor now have heard the good news of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Think about it. If you're, you envision yourself, just transport yourself back in that day. Envision yourself, you're living in Asia during that time. All the roads of Asia converge on Ephesus, right? They go through. It's, it's a commercial hub in the center, epicenter. Everyone who lived in Asia would come to Ephesus time to time. Either buy or sell, visit a relative, frequent a bath, attend a game in the stadium, watch a drama in the theater as we talked about, or worship the god, goddess uh, Diana in the Ar- temple of Artemis. While in Ephesus, you're there. Hey, you hear about this lecture. There's this guy, this Christian lecturer named Paul of the way. He's speaking and answering questions for five hours in the middle of the day. Every day. Night in, night out. You stop by, take a listen. Many surely did. And through the gospel sharing, many came to know Jesus Christ and be saved. Right? And what do they do? They return back to their smaller towns and villages with the gospel transforming their hearts. Message of hope. God's plan of salvation. And with that truth, the gospel spread throughout Asia. God has a plan. You, you following me? God has a purpose for cities. That's why God loves cities. Because he loves people. And he used Paul as a persuader of the city to spread the gospel from that great city of Ephesus to the ends of the earth. Church, as we think of our great city today, New York City, perhaps, arguably, the greatest city in the world you and I are part of. God is asking us, are we persuaders of this city? Are we persuaders like Paul? Whether through word or deed, sharing, speaking of the good news that we have, the gift that God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. Are we talking about that, you know? On our online forums, discussions, are we talking to one another about Jesus? Or are we more like Demetrius, persuading others for our own interests? Here, here's my ideology. I want to try to convince you or change you for my own ambitions, for my own pride. This city of Ephesus could have gone one of two ways. By God's work, praise God through his servant Paul. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord and they were saved. What kind of persuader will you be for this city? Would you pray, God, help me to be a persuader for the gospel 
that I will be a persuader for this city, this beautiful, great city that you'll be called, that through persuasion that many would come to hear of Jesus and find everlasting life through the gospel, the good news. Let's pray. You know, we've been asking you to pray for our city ever since you know, the pandemic began, of course, but then obviously with what happened with the racial injustice and, and George Floyd, how it began just months ago now, we're praying for the welfare of our city. Jeremiah 29 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare, church. Brothers and sisters, God has sent us to this great city. Do you love it? If you do, because I, I love New York. I, I, really, I really do. I love this city. And can you love its people? And can you pray to seek the welfare of this city that God has sent us to? Our city needs Jesus. It's the only thing that's going to change this city that is in peril right now. Would you pray for this city? Would you pray, God, uh, somehow through a simple guy like me, would you help me to be a persuader of this great city? Use me. My lips, my words, would it persuade others to you, Jesus? not my own ambitions. Will we be persuaders of God's city, church? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the QPEM podcast. For more information on our church, please visit our website at www.qpem.org. That's Q-P-E-M dot org.